Father, we worship you and eagerly anticipate that day that we can see you face to face. Lord, we know at that time we shall become like you and have eternal bodies existing forevermore to worship you, that thing that we desire the most, to honor you and glorify you in eternity. Give us this desire. Help us to see our lives, every day of our lives, and the mundaneness of it through these eternal lenses, remembering, Lord, that one day we will pass, or if it be your will, we will be here when your Son, Jesus Christ, returns. Bless us now as we consider these things in your truth, your word. Change us by these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are so glad to be here. What a joy it is always to come to the Word together, to study it, but also to fellowship, to enjoy the worship time of singing the Word of God as well. All the way back to the beginning, the people of Israel, when God put His people together, His identifiable people on earth, they would gather and they would sing and they would pray and they would read Scripture and make time for a spiritual leader to teach the Word. If you look back, what you find is that the preacher would simply read the text and explain that text and then make application. This tradition of worship carried into the Christian world, the Christian age, when Jesus came and set up His church, the local churches did the same thing. They would sing and fellowship and read and pray. There would also be a time of exhortation when an elder would stand up and explain and teach the Word of God. Literally for thousands of years, what we're doing right now has been an act of God's people gathered to worship, and we're glad that we can do that today. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 24. There we have been studying what Jesus said about their time and the end times in His discourse on the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse, we have seen, can be divided into three sections. Each section guided by a question Jesus wished to answer for his disciples. First question was about the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly the temple. And Jesus answered that question in the first 28 verses. The short answer is it would happen in their time. They would see this great tragedy. In fact, they would be a part of that. Disciples would be part of that terrifying era, even losing their own lives. Not only Israel would be destroyed and scattered, the disciples themselves indeed would be killed. That era, Jesus said, is just the beginning. The beginning of an age that would lead all the way up to the end and His return. That age, that first century, was emblematic of this entire time of turmoil and trouble. The Bible calls it the age of the Gentiles, or perhaps we can call it the church age, the time as the Gentiles are coming into the church. And so that leads us to the second question that Jesus answered here of the disciples. What will be the sign of your coming, the end of the age? The end of that time will be when Christ comes back as King. How will we know this, the disciples are asking. Now, the second half, almost all of the second half of the 24th chapter, deals with His return, His second coming. And last week I took, to, took some time at the risk of putting a few of you to sleep, justifying why and many others believe that this structure that I'm giving you is indeed Sound, first 28 verses being about that first century, which typifies the church age, leading all the way up to the coming of Christ, which is what the subject is in the second section of the chapter. 
or the second section of his speech. The third section of the Olivet Discourse uh, can be found at the, uh, toward the end of this chapter, beginning in 45, carrying all the way in to the end of 25, and it's all application from several word pictures. Jesus is answering that question that they didn't ask, and that is the question, so what? Why does it matter that we know about end times? If we don't know the time, if it's all vague to us, if it's something we can't pin down and uh, articulate just what happens year by year by year, why does it matter that we know about all this stuff? Why can't we just live our lives and leave it up to you? And so next time we're together, we'll begin to look at all those questions in terms of applications. Today, though, we're going to finish that middle section that, again, deals with the return of Jesus. This is found in chapter 24, verses 29 to 44. Let me read this second section of the discourse to you. We've already, begun start, start, we've already begun studying it, starting last week, and we'll finish that this week. Matthew 24, beginning in 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather His elect from the four winds, from the one end of the heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what in part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the Word of God. When a major national or international event occurs, without fail, I get a question. And by major event, I mean major event in nature or climate or a major event in terms of war or politics or geopolitics, even a major shift in society, uh, morality. And the more we see these major events happening, especially when they happen at the same time, in the same era, without a doubt I get that question. What question is that? It's this, Pastor, do you think we are living in the last days? Now, in truth, the last days, according to Jesus, began with His ministry. 
began at the time that He told the disciples what they would go through and what they would suffer and what would, would happen. That's the last days. It's an age. It's an epoch. It's an era that spans from the time of Christ's ministry all the way until His return, His second advent. But those who ask me that question don't mean that. What they mean is, are these the last of the last days? The question may be something more like this. Are there specific signs that we read about in the Bible, signs that indicate the nearness of the rapture or tribulation or second coming? And I feel a little pressure when someone asks me that question. I feel like they want me to say, well, of course, haven't you read Hezekiah 17, 12? It talks about this sign or that sign. Well, that just happened. All these trigger things happened. Haven't you read Revelation 29, 43? All these things just happened. Those aren't real references, by the way. Don't start digging through your Bible. They want me to say, of course. Don't you see? See what happened? See Russia doing this? We can find this in the page of Scripture. It's right here. Don't you see? We're closer than we ever have been. Well, it is true we're always closer than we ever have been. But what they want me to say is that some triggers have been pulled that indicate to us that we're about to see the return of Christ. People eat those kinds of discussions up. They love to discuss these kinds. Of, they love to hear sermons about these kinds of things. They love to read books about these kinds of things. I think it was 1987, of course, it was either 1987 or 1988, there was a book that came out. I think I still have it in my office. 1988, this book came out. It was written by a NASA engineer, so not a dumb guy. I think his name was Wisenhunt. Wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. He sold 5 million copies of that book. He's somewhere, probably up in some house... Round top, top drive somewhere smiling. <laughs> he made his money. People love to hear these things. What he said was his the big indicator is that 1988 is exactly 40 years after 1948. And as we all know, 40 years is a generation. One generation right after Israel was established will be the coming of Christ. And so exactly 40 years after the nation of Israel, 1968, was established, Jesus would come and rapture His people to Him. You say, well, Pastor John, that's, there's always weirdos out there. There's always people out there that predict and have precise sayings. Well, even more prominent teachers have said similar things through the years. In 1979, Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, said that the budding of the fig tree, we just read about it, Matthew 24, 32, is the founding of the nation of Israel. He said, generation of judgment is, as we all know, 40 years. If you track to seven years of tribulation, you end up with 1981. And he said in 1979 that he can't imagine that Jesus would tarry after 1980 or 1981. He drew that idea from Hal Lindsey, another very famous Bible teacher, who wrote a famous book in 1970 called The Late Great Planet Earth. There was a movie by the same title that came out after that, and there became a radio program. People ate this stuff up. They loved to hear about these things. The list goes on. Harold Camping predicted 2011. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witness, said Jesus would turn in 1874. 
Don't forget Joseph Smith, founder of LDS, predicted multiple times the return of Christ in his lifetime. Now, I'm not saying any of these folks are insincere or were just in it for the money. I'm sure some of them were. I'm sure some of them were great deceivers. I'm not even saying all of them were false teachers. Chuck Smith certainly has uh, had proven himself as a faithful Bible preacher through the years. That's not my point. My point is that people really want to have specifics. They really want to know when. They want this question answered. When? Give us at least a round figure, some sort of bracket of a few years. At some stage, we'll know when. And they want to have a, a checklist. They want to have this checklist that says, okay, this happened. Check that box off. Check that box off. Check that box off. And, and boom, we're here. I mean, it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. Any moment, it's going to happen. But this is not the purpose of prophecy. Alistair Begg said the function of prophecy in the Bible, all prophecy, including Jesus here in Matthew 24, is not to provide a reader with a detailed program, but to ready our hearts in worship, to prepare us, to make us ready. God doesn't give us a bulletin. You know, we handed you this bulletin. I talked about it earlier. We handed you this bulletin, and it gives you line by line, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. God doesn't give us a bulletin like that, what you, like what you have in your hand. Rather, what we have is a series in these prophecies, a series of really blurry mountain peaks. Events, some of them closer, some of them further. Some finding fuller fulfillment early on. Some finding fuller fulfillment later on. And once you become comfortable with that kind of ambiguity when it comes to prophecy, once you realize that we're just like the people in Daniel's day. You know, Daniel gave these great prophecies, and there's no way they could have mapped it all out in their head. Well, this is this nation, that's that nation. I mean, when that prophecy was made, Rome was not even a republic yet. And yet in that prophecy, it includes the idea of what, what Rome would later on become. So they couldn't know exactly what. It was foggy for them. It was ambiguous to them. They couldn't know precisely how these things may find fulfillment. They knew they would. They knew some basic truths. Well, this seems to be representing a nation or a person. It seems to be some actor on the scene, the international scene. But once you become comfortable with that, you can start to focus your attention on the main point. And again, the main point is to ready our hearts for the coming of Christ. We want to be more and more like Christ. If you do that, if you focus on that, if you're comfortable with that, a little bit of ambiguity when it comes to end times, you won't become like those obsessive know-it-alls going around with their charts and telling everybody what's going to happen. I'll only be disappointed. And you won't become like those who blow off prophecies and things in Scripture and just say, well, that just doesn't apply to me. It's too hard to understand. No, you'll be able to ingest the main points, find what the fundamental truths are, and then find application for everyday life. And that's what we're trying to do. As we listen to the words of Jesus, what was his main point? What is he trying to say? And I told you early on, one of the things he, he does say indeed is that these things are ambiguous to us, that we won't know these things. He says it there at the beginning of our text, and he says it at the very end of our text as well. These are things you don't know. 
Jesus turned his attention to the end of the age, to his return. As he did this, he wanted them to walk in the Spirit. He wanted them to produce the fruit of the Spirit. He wanted them to crucify the fruit of the flesh, and he wanted them to become more like Jesus. Well, what would motivate them to do that? What would he say to them at this point as he talks about his return that would help them do that? Well, I gave you two things he said last time. I'm going to give you three more today to close out this section. And then again, next time, by God's grace, we'll look at a massive application in a series of word pictures. All right, what have we seen so far? Number one, we've seen that the return of Christ is dreadful for most. Jesus said about his return in verse 30, the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is pretty scary. I was reading a commentator this week. He said the word there is the word anguish. They will be in anguish. They will hate and they will loathe the return of Christ. Why? Because he's caught them red-handed. He's caught them in the middle of rejecting him. They are not receiving him. Oh, maybe they view him positively. Maybe they affirm some historical facts about him. But if they've not believed, repented, and followed after him, Paul says... Until you did that, you were enemies of God. More than that, those who openly rejected Christ in this life, when Christ comes, they will know He has come as their judge. God in the flesh, Jesus the judge, has arrived. And that's why Jesus says there will be great mourning. Tribes of the earth will mourn. Christ has told the earth one day He'll return. He'll gather His elect from the four winds. He'll gather the goats and he'll cast them into eternal fire. And, of course, the question is, have you done business with God? Are you going to be a goat or a sheep? Are you going to dread the arrival of Christ or are you going to embrace it? So the opposite is, the true, is true for the children of God, right? So that's the second point we made. Number two, the return of Christ is glorious for the elect. Verse 30, second part, tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send out His angels with a, with a loud trumpet call. They will gather His elect from the four, four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We're finally rescued from this world. Christians glory in that day. We sing about that day. We sing and believe in that day as though it's already happened. We so firmly believe in the return of Christ. We sing about it as though it's already happened. We rejoice in this. One day He will come in the clouds. He'll call your name and gather you to Himself. What a glorious thought. Number three, the return of Christ is certain but veiled. It's certain, but veiled. And I think this is what Jesus was getting at when He, and I say veiled in verse 36, no one knows. In verse 44, an hour you do not expect, but it is certain. This prophecy, this is a promise of His return Again, it's not given to us like a bulletin or a program detailing us the times and the hours and what's going to happen at what moment. That's not saying I don't believe these verses are true or I'm not taking it literally. I believe I'm taking it according to their genre of Scripture. So let's read this. Verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that He is near 
at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So in 32, Jesus gave an illustration. Interesting, many people who claim to be literalists see this as a great symbol, the symbol of the fig tree. The fig tree, they say, is the nation of Israel being planted in 1968. But Jesus does not specify that meaning. And I think unless Jesus does give us that meaning, we're supposed to just take it at face value. Jesus is giving an example. The example is a fig tree. When you see a fig tree in bloom, you know that summer's around the corner. It's about to happen. Summer, the, the days are going to get longer. It's going to get hot. You can see this by simply looking at a fig tree. I don't think it takes rocket science or some kind of PhD in hermeneutics to figure that out. I think Jesus is giving us a very basic illustration. When you see a fig tree in blossom, you know that summer is coming. The question is, what's the parallel? Well, in context, Jesus had said nothing about Israel becoming, coming back to the Holy Land or something more specific in terms of history. What He said is, what signs have happened is that the people have endured suffering. The people have endured hardship. You disciples will endure all these things all these things going throughout really endemically or epidemically throughout the time, the church age. So again, keeping our context here, it's going back to the hardship that Jesus prophesied for His own disciples and indicated this, this would be something that would be emblematic for this entire age. False Christ, false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, martyrdom. And it all happened in that first generation. That's why we can say Jesus, when He said... You, uh, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. Well, it's exactly what he said. They, they started dying. They started being martyred. They started hearing about false Christ. You can't even get to the end of the New Testament. You find out there's all this false teaching invading the church and trying to draw away, if possible, even the elect. It all happened. And it all continues to happen. I mean, what of this does not continue to happen? We know about wars and rumors of wars. We know about dramatic things that happen in nature, earthquakes and floods and tsunamis. These things have happened in every generation since then. What this means is what we call the imminence, or you could say nearness, of Christ's return. Meaning at any moment, there's... No, no need to come up with some checklist. There's no need to, to take your newspaper and try to find parallels to what's happening in Revelation. Jesus has made it very clear since the beginning of this, when He began to prophesy this, when He told this, them this, His coming, His arrival was imminent from the moment He spoke these words. At any moment, these things could happen. This generation is not going to pass away. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face martyrdom. You're going to face death. And what that means is, that's like the fig tree blossoming right before summer. That means my return is near. Now, again, that's happened not just in their generation, but in every generation since. Listen to what James Boyce says about this verse. They knew of many false Christs, heard of wars and rumors of wars, experienced famines and earthquakes, witnessed apostasy, heard of false prophets. So has every generation since. Therefore... 
We have all seen everything we need to see or can see prior to Jesus' return. We have nothing to look forward to except the second coming. The bottom line is that we need to be ready because no one knows about the day or the hour when the Lord will come. Alistair Begg said very simply, since the incarnation, we have been living in the last days. At any moment, Christ could return. So there's certainty about Jesus' return. All that needs to have happened has happened for Jesus to return. We don't need to look at red heifers or read about some secret society that's trying to institute temple worship in Israel. We don't have to look behind all these things and read the leaves and try to do some sort of linguistic study above the Hebrew and numerics. Jesus told them, this stuff is going to start happening to you right here before this generation ends. And that's all you need to know in terms of the timing of my return. It could, have hap- it could happen at any moment from this moment forward. So that means, even though it's certain, even though it's true, it is veiled in, in the sense that no one is going to know about it. It's certain, but it's veiled. That is to say, you're in good company. Jesus said, concerning the day or hour, no one knows not even angels of heaven nor the Son. You're in good company if you cannot predict the coming of Christ. You're in good company if you don't have a chart laid out at home while you're ticking off boxes and you heard about this happening and you heard about some society in Israel and you heard about them doing this or them doing that. You're in good company because not even the angels knew. Nor did the Son of Man know when He was on earth and had put His human clothes on, so to speak. He still owned his divine omniscience, but he closeted those attributes for the sake of redemption. He closeted them so that he could put on flesh, and by putting on flesh means that he had to restrict in terms of his mind. At the moment he spoke this, he did not know the timing of his return. It's always surprising to me how many folks think they're exempt from these verses. Oh, I know, they usually start out by saying that. Well, I know that no one can know the day or the hour. But I know generally the day or the hour, at least the year. People love to think of themselves as though they've deciphered something that no one else has for 2,000 years. It was certain the arrival of Christ, the arrival of Christ would be certain, but it is also veiled. We don't know it could happen at any moment. This leads us to number four, the return of Christ is surprising for most. Now, this is similar to what I said at the beginning. This is dreadful for most. But now we have this element of imminence, the the nearness of the return of Christ. Verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. If you grew up in American Christianity, especially the 70s and 80s, I'm sure you were forced to watch a movie or hear a couple sermons or maybe you read a tract. And the premise was that the rapture could happen at any moment, so you'd better be ready. And what is depicted in those movies or those tracts are some horrifying things, right? couple Christian pilots piloting a 747 across the Pacific Ocean. The rapture happens and suddenly the plane plummets into the ocean. 
train with hundreds of people riding in on a daily commute. The engineer gets taken up in the rapture, and the train goes careening, killing hundreds if not thousands of people. Now, let me say those depictions are sometimes easy to mock. A lot of pastors, we like to make fun of those depictions from the 70s and 80s. But we must agree on this basic premise that something like that is going to happen. What's wrong is maybe sometimes they pair that with the rapture. Two men will be in a field, one taking one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one be taking one left. They apply it to a pre-tribulation rapture. <clears throat> I think it's a, excuse me. I think it's important to note that good, biblically sound, even dispensationalist people who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture do not believe this applies to a rapture. This applies to the second coming. This is the second coming. The whole subject matter in these verses is the second coming. And this flows directly from what Jesus had just said about all the pieces being placed. All the signs point to now. And it's been that way since His incarnation. And what that means, it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen surprisingly. It's not like there's going to be some warning and the pilots of Hawaiian Airlines are going to say, oh, did you hear there's a heifer, a red heifer in Jerusalem, so we better get, if there's a Christian pilot, we better get a non-Christian pilot up there in the cockpit too because you know, if he's taken, that heifer's already there, so if he's taken, at least there's someone to fly the plane. Now, there's no warning. There's nothing that's going to tell everybody to, to brace themselves, and everyone's going to be, okay, we saw this coming. Not going to happen that way. I would encourage you to study what Jesus mentions here, the geology of the worldwide flood there in Genesis. It wasn't just a bunch of rain that built up over time and people had plenty of time to prepare themselves, although you still wonder sometimes these, these folks that see a hurricane coming I don't know, six months beforehand, and yet they still wait to leave until the day the hurricane hits. No, it's not what happened. In the days of Noah's flood, the Bible says the waters from the deep burst forth. There were explosive fissures that formed in the ground. You can imagine whole towns being sucked into this watery grave all of a sudden. The picture that Jesus gives here is the same. Noah's day, people were just going about their business. He gives this illustration, the eating and drinking. You think of people sitting at a table, dining, not even thinking about the judgment that Noah had been preaching about. In fact, they probably mocked it. And suddenly they're drowning. People walking down the aisle, giving their daughter in marriage, and suddenly a big fissure in the ground opens up and the whole wedding party falls into it. That's what happened in Noah's day. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving children marriage, and boom, no warning, the flood swept them away. This is like Pompeii. Now, they found remains in Pompeii with people with unchewed food in their mouth. That's how this is going to happen. Jesus said it will happen to you as an utter surprise. For those who are not gathered to Him as children, for those who are not prepared, for those who are not ready, it is an unwelcome surprise. It will happen all of a sudden in a frightening way. For those of us who are waiting, who are ready, who are praying for this day, it is not, all, not only not a surprise, it is a welcome. We joyfully welcome Christ's arrival. That's number five as I see it here. The return of Christ is welcome. 
for the elect. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know what day your Lord is coming. And then he gives a small illustration. Know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If we're ready, if we've taken these words to heart, the arrival of Christ will be welcome. The lesson of the master of the house being ready means he would have not been surprised. It wouldn't be an unwelcome shock. He'd be ready. The point is readiness. They don't want to allegorize this too much. Jesus doesn't. It's just teaching that as children of God, we need to be ready. And when he arrives, we will welcome his arrival with joy. Now listen carefully. There are many Christians who really want Jesus to come back, just not yet. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe there's sin in your life. It's unconfessed, unrepented. You don't want to end life like this. Maybe you cling to stuff, belongings, or maybe experiences that you want. I heard someone say one time, I want Jesus to come back, but first let me become a grandma. I want to see my little grandbaby first. Dear Christian, I know that being a grandma is a wonderful thing. It's got to be the most wonderful thing in the world. Not quite better than being a grandpa, but I'm sure it's wonderful. It's not as wonderful as Jesus coming back. Christians say they are ready, but not yet. Maybe you're not ready in terms of priorities. If Jesus showed up now, he'd find someone whose life is a mess. You've got so many things that you live for, so many things you pursue, so much stuff you want to do, stuff you want to have, promotions you're pursuing after. Your life is anything but dictated by Jesus Christ. Maybe you have friends and family who are not Christians. I think it's good, even biblical, for you to pray, Lord, tarry for their sake. But you must also say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I trust you, your timing, your judgment, it will be perfect. And so I welcome your return with open arms, even if it's now. Well, how do we ready ourselves? How do we work through these issues? Jesus answered that question in the very next section and continued all the way to the end of his sermon there on the Mount of Olives, spending most of his time in, in application. So that's what we're going to do. Beginning next time, we'll pick up and look at these word pictures. He gives a series of word pictures that help us think through how we can be ready for the return of Christ. Before that, let's just ready our hearts even now as we think about His coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what You've done for us. We thank You for all that You've given us, even given us this truth and pointing out to us the imminence of Your return, uh, the return of Your Son, that any moment, at any moment, Christ could come back. And so, Lord, may this even this sermon where Jesus has not even got really heavily into application yet, even this sermon where He simply mentions this, the suddenness of His return, the imminence of His return, Lord, may we prepare our hearts and we make ready our, our hearts for Christ's return. For some in this room, that means finally doing business with you, repenting of their sin, following after your Son, Christ, believing in Him, 
living a life in pursuit of Him and His righteous calling. For others, it means a, another step in sanctification, getting rid of that sin, changing your priorities, doing things in terms of family and friends that are meaningful and eternal. Help us ready our hearts for the coming of your Son, because we know when He comes, this will split humanity in two, those who were ready and those who weren't. Those who are His children, the sheep, and those who are not, the goats. May we be numbered among the sheep. That's this in Jesus' name.